Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful to come to you this morning and grateful to uh, participate in this ordinance that you have set aside. Grateful for Lee and his testimony of following Christ and the work that you've done in his heart. Father, we are grateful that that's the testimony of so many here. We pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts to pick up the pace in following Christ as we watch Lee begin his walk with you. God, we look at you and we see such a great sufficiency in you, such a fullness. And God, we know, as uh, was mentioned in the prayer meeting this morning, it is the edges of your ways. God, we can scarcely get the dimensions of those edges. We surely cannot comprehend the fullness. But God, we are grateful for what you've revealed about yourself. Knowing that there is that, though, Father, we pray that you would not let us be content now with a little bit. Father, don't let us be content with a little bit of love and a little bit of grace and a little bit of faith and a little bit of obedience. God, we pray that you would stir our hearts and create in us a longing and a hunger that can only be answered by you. God, we are recipients of such grace. We don't want to receive that grace in vain. So God, we pray that even as we open your word this morning, as we sing now, as we, we look at the word later, God, that you would work in us and that you would help us to see something again of the greatness of your character and your work and that our hearts would yearn for you not just what you can give but for you and God we do pray for those who don't know you and God we pray that the um, the work that you've done in the lives of those around them would bear testimony of your power to save and to transform and God we pray that you would create a holy jealousy within them we praise you for your goodness to us we praise you, Father, for your faithfulness. And we ask you to come now and bless in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to be looking this Sunday and next Sunday at these passages. And it, even though it does seem like it's a break from our normal theme of following Christ, which we are also doing on Wednesday evenings for the next three weeks, where we look at the prayer life of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 gives us such simple, concise pictures of what it looks like when God's people, uh, in harmony with the work of the Spirit, um, are impacted by His Word and impact those around them. So really just helpful pictures leading to the next thing we're going to be looking at, and that is how do we follow Christ today uh, as a part of a family, as a part of church. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you that, pardon, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen 
even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Well, may the Lord add his blessings to that passage. Now, I want us to just take a moment to kind of step back and think about uh, what a healthy church looks like or um, Let me get this right. Sorry. So what does a healthy church look like? We know that following Christ is a thing that we have to do as individuals. The call of Christ goes out. Follow me. And Christ tells us in the gospel of John that his sheep hear his voice and they follow. So there is no such thing as a Christian who is not also a follower or a believer who is not a follower. Our following may be very imperfect, but the reality is that none of us can say that we really belong to him if when the gospel call goes out, all we do is say, uh, I agree, uh, I get it, uh, I see how it fits together. So we are each called to follow Christ and we will have to give an account to God at the end of time. What did we do with that call? But there is something more, and this is where we're kind of shifting gears a little in our theme, and we want to look at the fact that that must include following Jesus Christ with other believers. So what is it to follow Christ or to be discipled by Christ? Well, it's to have our faces toward God. His son is the focus. It's a person we're following, not just a list of rules, but in our hands is an open book the map. And this gives us such clear indication of what does and does not please God so that we're not just left with kind of a sentimental desire. You know, I want to be a better Christian. I want to follow Christ more closely. I'm not sure what that looks like in this situation or this situation. So the scripture is in our hands. It's open and our feet are on a very definite path of obedience. But there is one more element that is, we are doing that not in isolation, but we are doing that with other believers all around us. And that means that you're following Jesus Christ is not all that it should be unless it includes helping other Christians that God has put in your life to follow as well. You cannot really be discipled by Christ in the normal, in the norm of Christianity, if you are not being taught by Christ in a way that also impacts the believers around you, if you 
divorce yourself from the responsibility of love in just practical ways. We know that in Ephesians, Paul talks about this, the fact that Christian growth is not just an individual isolated thing, but it's, there is that wonderful personal response to God and his word, but it's also being a part of a body. Do you remember Ephesians 4 verse 15? We are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So individual parts, all connected to Christ vitally, spiritually, one with him, and all interwoven with others. And what God is teaching and doing in you, Christian, will be part of how God teaches and works in other believers around you and they in you. Well, we're going to take these two Sundays to look at 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 today, chapter 2 next week, and then we're going to look at some, some specific applications with just some specific verses, not from Thessalonians. But today, let's look at Ephesians, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and how it is that church works when we think of the kingdom of God spreading from our lives to the people that are sitting next to us or the people that we work with. Or how it spreads from this generation to the next. How do you pass the baton of the truths of Christ and the pattern of Christ to the next generation? I mean, we, it's so obvious, and we've been talking about this for a while. But Christ did not, in his resurrection and ascension, the Father and the Son did not send the Spirit to inhabit libraries. So good Christian books are helpful. And we like to give good books away at the church here. We spend thousands of dollars a year giving books to people here and to people around the world. We spent nearly $3,000 sending books to men in Canada who are training for the ministry. But ultimately, that's just not enough. And we have other, uh, you know, electronic means. We have podcasts and, and, you know, we can go online and watch sermons, but what Christ left behind was not a podcast and it was not a library. He left behind men and women who had embraced the truth and were walking in the truth. And through them, then the truth spread geographically and to the next generation. What does it look like when that's going well? Well, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we find in verse 2 and in verse 3 that Paul mentions this healthy church. There is something about the church that stirs Paul, every time he remembers it, in his prayers, to be so grateful to God. It's not a perfect church. If we keep reading the chapters here, you find that there are some misunderstandings and there's some bad behavior that flows from the misunderstandings, particularly with regard to the return of Christ. But Paul remembers this church, and as he remembers, he cannot help but always, and look at the, in verse 2, the dimensions of this, we give thanks to God always for all of you. So 
Every time I remember the church, even with its problems, Paul is stirred to thank God for it. And when he thinks of the church and he's thankful for God, he is thankful for every real Christian in that gathering. Whether they're the ones that are, you know, doing well or whether they're the ones that are uh, misapplying the return of Christ and causing trouble. But what's the reason for his gratitude? And that comes in verse 3. Paul mentions these invisible spiritual qualities, faith and love and hope. These things that God alone can work in a soul. And when he mentions these three things, even though these are invisible, we, we would call them graces or spiritual qualities in the Christian, you can't see faith, you can't see love, you can't see hope in itself. But in the Christian, all three of these are active. So you can see the activity of faith and the activity of love and the activity of hope. And without the external activity, there's no reason for Paul to be so grateful. I know it sounds almost irreligious or maybe, uh, uh, you know, we people might think you're cranky. But I don't see that you have any biblical reason for, for thanking the Lord for professions of faith that never produce faith, love, or hope in its activity. I think it would be more a thing that would grieve you. Now, I'm not asking us to be hyperjudgmental. And someone says, my grandson's getting baptized this weekend. And we say, ah, oh, probably, not, probably not real conversion. You know, I mean, we don't want to do that. But if you have people you work with, if people in your family who have professed Christ, and it's been years, and there seems to be no visible demonstration of the life of God in their soul, I don't know what you would be grateful for. But Paul sees an external display, the evidence, the fruit of these three things, though they are themselves are invisible. Now let's think about them. How do they interact in the life of a Christian? Because it really is such a simple but complete picture of the way that all of this is going on on the inside of the believer. So first, there's faith, and we've talked a lot about that. Hebrews 11, for example. Faith is what God has given you, an ability to look at Scripture and to lay hold of, to kind of get a foretaste of things that are not yet fully given, or to have the evidence of things that are still invisible. So if God says, this is what you have in Christ, faith grabs hold of those words and believing the God that says them brings them into the life. Faith is the way that we get words off of a page and into the soul. And then the heart of the man or woman, the, the interior, what we think is affected, what we desire is affected, what we choose is affected. So faith, again, is not uh, having a fundamentally optimistic view of life or of Christianity. Faith is taking what God says to be real and grabbing hold of it in a way that you have, in some sense, the evidence of it and you live on it. Faith lays hold of these truths, not yet fully seen, not yet fully given. And that leads to the next love. Faith works 
love labors. So believing these things, I work. Believing these things, and they're not just abstract truths, but these are truths that are so intimately connected with your soul's good. Not just Christians, not just the church, you. But also as a church, the kindness of God to us. And as the great facts of Christ are in front of your eyes, as you hold them before you, and they captivate you again, love is stirred in your soul for your Savior. The one that's forgiven much loves much, Christ says. Paul says the love of God for us constrains us or compels us forward. So when we're tempted to drift, it's the realization that God is presently loving you in Christ that holds you to the course. And when you are tempted to just kind of stop and sit down and, you know, to put it in neutral, it is the love of God for you in Christ that compels you. I think the love of God for us, when as Christians, our eyes are open to that, I think it is the most frightening thing to a Christian who would prefer to live for themselves in the present moment. To know that you cannot sin against God without sinning against this love. It's like a wrecking ball against all of our indifference to know that he has not become indifferent to you. Now, love, he says, because of these great facts, the facts reach our soul and we love the God of these wonderful truths. And as we love him, the expression is labor. So just like faith, it doesn't stay hidden. Labor. But the word in the Greek is to labor to exhaustion. And that isn't something that we're completely unfamiliar with, is it? If you find a mother... And, the, and they have a little child uh, and, you know, and this infant is being taken care of by mom and by dad. And, you know, you see them on Sunday morning and they look like they haven't slept in a long time. And you say, how much you sleep last night? And they give you this like, well, last night was bad. But they don't leave the baby, you know, in the Walmart parking lot. It's something it's difficult, but it's something they want to do because of love, love. Love labors even to the point of exhaustion. And that is an evidence of God at work in a church. That there is a labor of love within this fellowship, outside of the fellowship, even at times when it seems to stretch you to exhaustion. Third, having been gripped by these facts that make us work and love is stirred and that makes us labor, then hope. Fueled by the great facts, this confident, unshakable expectation, this hope, produces in the believer, in a church, a sustained path of obedience. In other words, it's not just steadfastness or patience, which you might view as a, um, a quality that's inactive. You know, I'm, I'm enduring, like I'm just, I'm lasting. It is that ongoing endurance to persevere. Why doesn't the believer quit? Well, because the facts by faith have gotten hold of him and his heart loves the king now. And seeing this king, Jesus, at the right hand of the father, as the Bible describes him to be, 
And by faith, being gripped by that reality and what it means for you right now, hope, hope's grip of Christ right now in the presence of the Father, what a fuel for persevering. Now, we are reading this nearly 2,000 years after it was written, but the Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters of Paul. You can imagine that he arrives, he preaches. Next week, we'll talk about the book of Acts where we see how it went when he arrived. But there was a lot of persecution. Paul has to leave. The Thessalonian Christians are left. They're persecuted. What could cause them to persevere, to press on all the way to the end? The realization by faith's grasp of Scripture that the Lord they're trusting in for the forgiveness of their sins and the rescue of their souls and everything they need in life, he is presently in the presence of the Father. And so they endure. Well, that's the healthy church. Now, when Paul describes what it is that makes him so grateful, these qualities being demonstrated, in verse 4, it leads him to the realization that there is something invisible or someone invisibly at work in these people. What he's described in verse 3 is not the product merely of his great preaching. It's not the product of his prayer life. It's not the product of those people in Thessalonica and their strong faith and spiritual courage. It is the product, ultimately, of the love of the living God, which has invaded their lives. So look at verse four, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Every real conversion, every day that a Christian presses on and every true church requires an explanation that rises above the message, the messengers, the people. There is something invisible, something spiritual going on that is not explainable by earthly things. Of course, it's God. Let me stop and give us a little test. If Paul were to hear a report, because he's not in Thessalonica right now, he's gone but he gets reports. If Paul were to hear a report about us as a church, what would it require for him to know? Uh, what would it, you know, you're looking at Christ church and you say, wow, there must be this at work. Sadly, there are some religious gatherings and they might call themselves a church, but when you watch what is said, and I'm not talking about, you know, well, they're Arminian, so they can't be God's people. I mean, you know, a religious gathering that is so far from Scripture but claims to be Christian. But if you were to go there or you hear a report of what goes on there, you would have to you would have to understand you would say oh well then i know there is an invisible force at work but it is not god there is a deceiver at work but what would people have to know to explain us would they say well i know there's a god of patience or i know there's a god who is real because of what i see occurring in that 
very average group of people. Paul knows that there must be the reality of God. Two things he mentions. One is that he loves the people. They are the beloved. And second, that this love is the sovereign. The love of a king with authority behind it. The eternal love of God that predated any of their love for him. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 13, Paul mentions this again. Again, he mentions that of all that he's seeing occur, it's wonderful, but he reminds them the foundations or the root system for your obedience, the foundation or root system for following Jesus as a, as a group is not in our willpower, but the roots system is in God's eternal love. Verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians 2. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Well, it's the same thing. He just adds a little more detail there. Knowing Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Knowing the, the mysterious activity of an eternal God that Father, Son, and Spirit in the councils eternal have agreed to send mercy and not just justice. And to, and to set their affections, God to set his affection on a people who care nothing for him. A love that is unmerited. A love that is unsought. None of us started our relationship with God by saying, well, you know, I would really love to be loved by a God. I would love to be brought into a relationship with a being who is so superior that it proves that I'm not that being. But in extraordinary kindness, Paul says, I see evidence of God's love for you in these changes in your life. And this is a love that's based in his choice, not in how lovely you are. What evidence does Paul give? Well, he says in verse four, knowing this, and then verse five and following in the chapter come the evidences. Now, you remember that not long ago on a Wednesday evening, we talked about the experiential knowledge of a Christian. We mentioned the experiential faith, experiential knowledge, that Christianity is not just a fine set of truths or concepts or, you know, theories that you get in the right order in your mind. And then that's the end of it. It it does get into you. It has an ability to alter you deep within there. There is something about knowing God for the Christian that is not just able to be contained on a page it's relational. This is not that kind of knowledge. This is the other Greek word that is used for knowledge that is still truly Christian knowledge, but there's a different flavor. It is the knowledge that comes by observing and deducing. So Paul isn't saying, oh, I'm the apostle Paul. I wrote half the New Testament. God has explained to me everyone he's elected and everyone he didn't elect. 
It's so easy to abuse such a wonderful truth, and that shouldn't surprise us because the more precious and valuable the truth is that God gives us, the more the enemy gives us a little nudge, and we find ourselves tempted to go off of the biblical balance, and we become, uh, we become people who are imbalanced. We become people that have a wrong application of a wonderful truth. And this is one of those truths that gets so frequently abused, not just by people that reject it, but by people that know that it's precious. God's love predated your love. God's love predated the creation of the world. Paul knows that God loves these people in that way. How do you know that? Because God hasn't explained that to any of us. And the answer is, I deduce that by what I see happening in your lives. Because what I'm watching, what I'm hearing about from people that visit you, those are things that only God produces. Now, I want us to, before we look at the evidences, to stop and just to be very clear, what is about to follow? These are the evidences of the work of God in the soul. And so these are things that are given to encourage people who are being persecuted to really press on. These are not things given to prevent unbelievers from becoming believers because they say, oh, well, I'm not one of the elect. Paul does not say in this passage, I'm glad that God chose you 40 people, however many there were, that responded when I preached because you're the elect. And nobody else in Thessalonica is the elect. I imagine when Paul wrote this letter, after leaving Thessalonica, and he gets reports back about the spread of the gospel through their witness and their words, their lives. I imagine there are a lot of new names added to the list of that group of believers who rejected the gospel when Paul preached it. But now in watching the church and God working through the Christians there, now they are his. So Paul is not saying, I know that everyone that rejected my preaching, well, they're just not elect. He limits himself to say this. I know that what I see in your life, as wonderful as it is, it is the love of God. And that kind of love started before you ever responded. When we look at this, we also see not just the end, the goal of God's loving choice, but we see the means. What what does God, if God is going to rescue, like he says later in the chapter, if he's going to bring them into this enjoyment of his glory, if they're going to be his children, his people, what's required? Everything that chapter one mentions is required. In other words, God never gives us an explanation of his sovereignty that looks like this. Since God is a king above all kings and has the right to do all his good pleasure, which is true. Therefore, if God decrees that you're going to be a Christian, well, you're going to be a Christian. And it doesn't matter what happens between the decree and you standing before Christ. That, that is secondary. God has chosen to save. To save a people that no one could number, but... He has also chosen everything, every tool, every means 
of bringing rescue. And the reason Paul mentions it is to fill the people with real courage. I want to run the Christian race because it's not just us trying to love each other and trying to love God. It is us being loved by God. So how do we live now? Well, let's look at the things that were evidences of God's love for them. Number one, the way the gospel came to them. So he says in verse five, for our gospel, it's not just Paul. There's also Silvanus. There's also Timothy. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And he mentions some other things. But let, let's just think about the message itself. Our gospel. Paul is drawing a distinction between what he explained about God and about the work of Jesus Christ and about the Christian life and what the false teachers are explaining. So our gospel, what we explained, what God entrusted us with, what we delivered to you, when it came, it came in such a wonderful way that it proves God's kindness. No matter what follows, again, in the coming verses, when it talks about the power, the work of the Spirit, the conviction, uh, when it talks about the example of Paul and the reaction of the people, if it is not the gospel that was entrusted to Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, if it was not the truth that Christ brings, then there is no hope for any Thessalonian or us. A church is not a group of people who stir themselves up to be really devout people. And it doesn't matter what is taught as long as they have warm feelings for each other in Jesus. Christ said that it is the truth that sets us free. It is the truth about God and the truth about us and the truth about the cross and the truth about the Christian life. That's the freeing reality. Half-truths and lies of the false teachers that Paul has to always battle against do not rescue. Our gospel, not just the gospel God gave them, which is the right gospel, but also a gospel that they identified with, that they possessed. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are not glorified Christian mailmen who bring letters throughout the world with the message of God in it. But those letters have nothing to do with them. They're just delivering the mail. If your mailman hands you a letter and it's from a son or a daughter that you haven't heard from, it's kind of hard to imagine somebody writing you a letter nowadays, but, you know, we have email. Or it's, you know, a letter from a son or daughter overseas. And they go to hand it to you and they go, oh, you're going to like this one. It's a great letter. I mean, they're like, it's, it's really encouraging. And you think, it's not your letter. Why, why are you talking this way, you know? Give me my letter. Your job is just to hand it to me and don't let it get lost in the process. But that is not Paul's job or Savannah's job or Timothy's or ours. We can say to people, our gospel, the one that was handed to us through Scripture, but the one that we ourselves have tasted and we have seen that he is better than we thought he would be. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Chuck led us through, where Paul says, having been given this ministry and having received this mercy, I, Paul, the messenger, have been brought out of a grave of death and religious deceit and darkness into life by the same message I'm about to explain to you. There is no such thing as a church following Christ together without the gospel and the gospel being our gospel too. So the message itself, it comes. Paul doesn't say we came to you with the right message that has saved us. He could have said that. But in our English translation, it's pretty clear. Now he puts it in the negative. Our gospel did not come. He doesn't say we did not come. Why not say we did not come? Why do you put it that way? In the Greek language, it's even more obvious because how you lay out the order of words in Greek shows which ones you want the reader to know. This is the emphasis. And his emphasis here is this. The gospel, it came to you. And it didn't come to you in this way. It came in this way. Paul personifies the message, even though the message is not a person. Paul's the one that delivered the message. But Paul, when he thinks of the gospel, it's as if it is a thing. The truths of God, when God is at work, have such vitality. They are dynamic, living, active penetrating, life-wrecking truths. And they come to us and turn us upside down and inside out and then bring us to him. And Paul describes the gospel as if it is a, a living thing all to itself. It reminds me of a passage in Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. Let me read you this verse. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became Obedient from the heart to what? To that form of teaching to which you were committed. Not, he doesn't say, to that form of teaching. In other words, those truths that we brought to you, which we committed into your hands. Okay, be careful with these truths. Again, Paul personifies the truths of God. He says, you became obedient from the heart when you were handed over to the truth. And the truth had its way with you. And now you're alive and a slave to righteousness. There is no such thing as a true church that requires the explanation that God is at work. And that is following him together. That doesn't have a message that is living. Invasive. You know, active. It comes. It is entrusted with our lives. The next thing he says about the message, it comes with power. And he lists these three things, power and the spirit and conviction. It's not just that we need the right words brought to us by people who have tasted the kindness of the Lord themselves. It's not just that the word of God is living and active. It's not just that the gospel is, it's as if it's coming. It has to come with power and not just with the right words. 
In 1 Corinthians, there's a wonderful contrast in chapter 2 and then in chapter 4 of Paul's first letter. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul speaking about how he views speaking. So when I came to you, he says, I didn't use a lot of fancy, highfalutin theological terms so you would be impressed with Paul. And whatever changes happened in you, it was because Paul was such a great preacher. But he said, I was trembling at the thought of the task and in dependence upon God so that what occurred in you would be from the power of God and not from the abilities of Paul. But then in chapter 4, he says, he's talking about these false teachers. They think that I'm not going to return. They think that I won't, you know, greet them face to face as they've been lying to you and giving you false doctrine. And when I come there, I will deal with them. And this is how he says he will deal with them. I, when I arrive, I want to know their power, not their systematic theology book. It is because Paul knows that only the truth from God, which comes with a power that the Spirit supplies, really transforms people, not the lies. And so if you meet a false teacher, they may be a very stirring, um, eloquent, popular speaker, but there will be no power in those people and their message to rescue a soul, to change a person. And so you'll notice that because you have to have everything else to make people interested. So it's it's the half-truths plus a thousand other things. But Paul knows that the truth, when the Spirit brings it to bear on our lives, there is power. And it is the work of the Spirit. And it is an expression of His love. Brethren beloved by God, we know His choice of you because we see how the gospel came. He brought you the right gospel. And it came with power. And that is the work of one person, the Spirit. All that the triune God has planned, all that the Father has provided in the Son, all that the Son has purchased for you and accomplished for you, the Holy Spirit now sent by Father and Son as their sweetest expression of love, of grace. The gift to the church is the third person of the triune God, that he would come and apply to your soul every aspect of the work of the new covenant, of, of the work of Christ. And he says it comes with conviction. That is, when the Spirit brings it to bear on the soul with that great power, there is something weighty, not light. There's a weight to it. There is something about it that you know it's not optional for you to listen or to respond you may have heard it a thousand times before, and it was always optional, but this time it's not. It's life and death. It's you and your creator. What do you answer? And you can't turn your face away, and you can't distract yourself anymore. It requires some response because the Spirit has come and made it to be a convincing, convicting, weighty message. And Paul says, when I see all of that, I know that God is at work. 
And if I see God at work like that, I know that he has loved you before he even created the world. That's the message. Look at the messengers. Verse five. Paul says the gospel came in this way, not this way, but this way. And then he says, just as you know. So he's calling their memories of his visit. And they're going to be called to the witness stand. What do you remember when we were there? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. One of the gifts and expressions of God's is that he doesn't just give us the truth, but he brings it to us through people who, even though they are imperfect, because of the work of God in their hearts, they are concerned about our souls. And so they live carefully so as not to distract us from what they're saying, so as not to detract from the message, so as to lend wonderful confirming evidence to what you're being told. So-and-so at work tells me about Christ. I look at his life. He's different. She's different. They're happy. I've seen them in good times and bad times. And I know they're imperfect, but their God sustains them. So I take what they say seriously. It's not an uncommon theme in Paul's letters. For the sake of time, I'll just point one more out to you. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. We'll talk about this next week. But that basically covers it all, doesn't it? You can see everything on that. You see how we're living. You can't see my motives. You can't see my thoughts. God sees all that as well. For you are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. So in chapter one and again in chapter two, Paul points out, you know how we lived and our life was part of the message. Let me give you a couple of quotes from other preachers, not in the Bible. John Calvin, we don't often quote Calvin. This is what Calvin said. So he's watching the Reformation unfold. And there's a lot of death and persecution, but there's also a lot of of the spreading of the kingdom that fills the believers with joy. But as Calvin is watching it spread across Europe, he says this, Satan aims to discredit the gospel by faults in the messenger. For if he succeeds in bringing the messenger into contempt, all hope of progress is gone. And we've seen that. That if a life is lived contrary to the message, then the enemy will use that. And it looks like the kingdom of God comes to a grinding halt. Robert McShane, a couple of hundred years later, 300 years later, writes this. My, he's the pastor of a small church in Dundee, Scotland. My people's greatest need is their pastor's holiness. And I've mentioned before, Cornelius Tyree in the mid to late 1800s in Virginia, Baptist pastor, and he wrote, the best commentary on the Bible 
that the world has ever seen is a holy life. And that's not just true, of course, for the paid ministers or the unpaid elders or the Sunday school teacher or the deacon. It is true of every person who turns to the person next to them and tells them what God says about a thing. And you are a messenger at that point for God. And the life, by the grace of God, is not to contradict the message for their sake. Your life ought to be on the, on the opposite edge. It ought to be a commentary. Paul goes and preaches in Thessalonica. He only has a short time with them. Then he's run out of town. He's explained the gospel He's given them the basics and then he's gone. How in the world would they know what they need to know? How do they know how a Christian acts? How do they know how a Christian responds to criticism or persecution? How do they know how a Christian goes to work? How do they know how a Christian reads his Bible or prays? And in part, those questions are answered by Paul's life. Look at what Paul Says There's this wonderful dynamic. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much tribulation and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. So this is the next great evidence of God at work. The way they received it. They received the word as from God. Though it was a man that was speaking. And then they imitated that man's pattern. In chapter 2, look at verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, I want to, us to be clear. Paul's not saying, and no preacher today could say, and no parent and no witness at work could say, when I'm talking to you about God, it is the word of God. Like the Pope. When I'm talking, you as, talking to you as Pope, well, everything I say is, it's, it's like the words of Jesus. It's equal with scripture. Even the apostle Paul would never have claimed that. When we speak to people about Christ and God is at work, they recognize, as, as they test it with Scripture perhaps, they recognize what is being said is that is what the Scripture teaches. These are not just the opinions of a person. These are the words that God has given us. And so we respond very differently. I know that we all have felt it. There are times where, you know, someone is teaching or someone is just talking to you one on one. And as they're talking to you they're, they the scripture is the source of what they're saying, but they're applying it to you. And so it's not as if they're only quoting the Bible. But as they talk, you are so aware this is the Lord pointing his finger at something in my life or pointing to the right path. I mean, it's God. We don't always feel that, you know, not every time someone gives you unsolicited religious advice. Do you think, wow, that was God 
Sometimes you think, wow, why did they say that? But sometimes it's so obvious. It's the Lord. Sometimes we hear a sermon and parts of the sermon, we think that is, that is so true. And I needed to be reminded. And then other parts of the sermon, you think, ah, I'm not so sure where they got that one. And you respond differently. Paul was grateful that God enabled him to speak in a way that what he said was an accurate presentation of God's message. And he also helped the people to recognize that. And knowing that, they responded to his words very differently than they would have if it would have just been the great opinions of Paul. Well, having embraced these words as coming from God, they also follow Paul's pattern. Paul talks about this a lot. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Later to the Philippians, he writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So it's not just Paul, the apostle, We imitate Paul because Paul is imitating Jesus. We've talked about this. This next generation, Paul's not in Philippi anymore. And he writes to them and says, remember how I lived when I was with you. That's the right way to apply the truths of Christ. But I'm not with you right now. So look at people that are following the pattern that I gave you for Christian living and for truth. So they say the same things I said, and they live the same way I lived as followers of Christ. And imitating me, they are imitating Jesus, because I'm imitating Jesus. Now, I'm not with you anymore, but you can look at them. And he says in the verse previous to that passage, note anybody in the church that is diverging from that pattern. It is not just the apostle following Jesus, and they follow Paul. It has come all the way down to us. The the pattern hasn't changed. It wasn't just for a short period of time. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says, you know, in the book of Revelation, once I seal up this, and no one is to add to it, and no one's to take away from this book, now that it's complete, you follow the book, and the example of believers around you has no, no more part to play in that. Obviously, the scripture is the map. But then we see other believers following the map and it helps us to know. So that's what it looks like to apply the truths in that area. In verse 8 to 9 and 10, it doesn't stop there. They follow Paul and Paul says, in following me, you are following Christ. But then it spreads, and this is the last point, how it goes out from a true church. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Verse 9, because other people already are telling us what great changes occurred when I came and preached to you. And the changes are basic. You turned to God. You turn from your idols to the living God and you long for the return of Jesus. And these great changes, 
the change in the way you talk and think and desire and the change in the pattern of your life as you're imitating Paul's pattern of following Jesus Christ, it just keeps spreading. And God is using this little group of believers in Thessalonica to impact the region around them and further. Simple picture of how it works in church. God sending us the truth. Sending us the truth oftentimes through people. So there's the, there's the doctrine on the page. But there's also people. And they're involved in our lives. And, and we're impacted. And then we begin to be involved in other Christians' lives. And we speak the truth in love. And they're impacted and God, by his spirit, sustains that. And the result is that our lives are changed and people see that and they imitate you because you're imitating Christ through the scriptures. And as a whole, the church has a faith that works or acts, a love that labors to the point of exhaustion and a hope seeing Christ at the right hand of God exalted, a hope that causes you to Persevere. Do not settle for any version of discipleship that does not include the believers around us. And 1 Thessalonians 1 gives us just the basic diagram of how that works. Paul closes his first letter to the Thessalonians with these wonderful words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass.